0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. Here's a change of schedule. Beginning September 9th until October 14th, we will be meeting at 8.30 a.m., 9.45 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 12.45 p.m. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. So you were created to have an impact on this world. God has placed you here so that you can be sent out by him and make a difference. And you don't have to talk to people very long before you realize this is innate in how God created us. It's part of how he wired us as human beings. You don't talk to people who say, yeah, I'm just here sort of marking time, waiting until it's my turn to die. Of course not. People are here and they want the world to be different because they were here. And the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the one who was fully and holy, consecrated to him. The world has yet to see what could be accomplished by such a person that would be consecrated to him because the greatest impact you can have on this world is to be sent out on the mission of God and accomplish the mission that he has placed on your life. But if you want to go out on this mission of God, you must perform some essential Preparation, And that preparation is to be consecrated. Say that word, consecrated. This is a word you say all the time, right? It's very normal. It's part of daily language. This is probably the subject of half of your emails that you send for work on any given day. Hey, can we consecrate the break room or whatever? Consecrated. We want to talk about how we can be consecrated for God and what that really means. And as we unpack this, we're going to look to the book of Joshua. So take a Bible and turn to it, if you would. Joshua chapter 3. We have them scattered around the room. You can also use an app if you want. I love the app from version. It's great. There's also a great app from Bible Gateway. We're going to be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. And this is a very exciting part of the Bible. You know, the Bible has different types of genres of literature. And Joshua is one of the history books. So it's reporting what happened to God's people, the nation of Israel. And it's a very exciting book. There's a lot happening. There's a lot of sieges and battles and conquering. And there's a lot going on. And historically, Joshua chapter 3 is a really interesting time. So what had happened was, up until now, Israel was led by Moses. He was their leader. Moses was the leader that God used to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And then at that time, God promised them, yes, you were slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to take you somewhere else where you're going to have your own land. You're going to have your own country. It's going to be the promised land, literally the land promised by God. But things did not go well while The nation of Israel was in the desert with Moses, and they did not end up going into the promised land under Moses' leadership. In fact, they had to wait, and they had to wait a while. But now, Joshua is the new leader, and they're ready to finally start going into the promised land. So we look here at chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. We don't want to skip this verse. There's already something exciting happening here. Now, why is the Bible careful to mention that they were at Shittim? Is it just to make me feel awkward when I have to say it (laughs) in church? It's possible, okay? But beyond that, they were at Shittim, and it's mentioned also in Numbers and in other places in the Bible. They had been there for a while. In fact, by most indications, they had been there for years. You can make your own joke about being stuck in Shittim for years, okay? But that's what had happened. They were there, and they couldn't get out, and suddenly they moved. Suddenly God sent them. We're talking about go. They were sent, and they journeyed three days out of Shittim over to the banks of the river. This is very exciting. They've been waiting for this for a generation, and it's finally happening. Verse 2. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Now, this is interesting. They're teaching about what this procession is going to look like, and they're saying, listen, the first thing that's going to happen is the Ark is going to go out, with the Levitical priests. And this is the same type of movement that other countries in the ancient Near East would have used. But for them, it would have been their king who had gone first. The king would go first with his honor guard. Then there would be a buffer, just like we're seeing here. Then all of the normal people would follow. And so very quickly, God is telling Israel through their leaders, listen, I will be your king in this. I will go before. I will be going first and you will follow. So it is not their king, but it is God, the Ark of the Covenant, going first. He says, you will follow me. And then in verse 5, we get the instruction. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Isn't that an incredible promise? Tomorrow, literally tomorrow, tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. They've been waiting a generation for this moment. And Joshua says, it's going to be tomorrow. And here's what you need to do. You need to consecrate yourselves. This is how you're going to prepare. And the word for consecrate here, the word is kadosh. Say that word, kadosh. It's with a Q like Qaddafi, not a K like Qaddafi. okay? Kadosh, okay? And this is a concept of, Holiness, but not holiness as in, you know, sort of anointed and made special. Holiness as in set apart, almost like reserved, set aside, withdrawn, separated. Okay, it's a, it's a very specific type of consecration that's throughout the Old Testament because it's talking about being set apart from the rest of the world to be used by God. And in a lot of the Old Testament, you'll see that they first talk about this consecration language with the priests. Okay, the nation of Israel had priests that administered all of their worship. And to become a priest, first of all, you were, you were consecrated from birth. You actually came out of a certain family. And if you weren't set apart from that family, you couldn't be a priest Beyond that, there were certain ceremonies to anoint a priest, certain washings that would be done, that would be both literal washings and symbolic washings. They would wear special clothes to demonstrate that they were set apart. They would have special instructions. They would also offer special sacrifices for their own sins before they would then be able to offer sacrifices for the sins of, of their nation, of their people. And the priests were set aside, they were kadosh, so that they could be used by God for their ministry. But we see very quickly that this, this special status was not reserved only for the priests. In fact, God told the nation of Israel, I want all of you to be set aside. In fact, he said this to them very specifically at Mount Sinai. Do you remember Mount Sinai? The, the cool robe, the white hair, the staff, right? Mount Sinai, this is when they received the Ten Commandments. God said to the whole nation, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession, set aside. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It says the whole country, the whole ethnicity, the whole people group, you can all be set aside for me. You can all be consecrated for me. But then we know that the story continues because when Jesus came, when Jesus lived and died and rose again, access to God was opened up to all who believe. In fact, 1 Peter is writing now not to the Jewish people anymore, but to all who believe. And he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession." that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is for us. Once you were not a people. He's saying you're not an ethnicity anymore. But now you are the people of God. A whole, you know, everyone accepting the priesthood of being anointed, set aside, made holy, reserved for God's use. That is the essential preparation that Israel needed to do before they could go in and they could take the promised land. They had to be consecrated. And so they set about doing that, you know, ceremonially and with prayer and other, in other ways that they knew how to be consecrated. This is something they were familiar with in their history. And they knew this was required to be prepared. So have you ever tried to do something that you were completely unprepared for? So I almost did this. A lot of you know, in June, I was in Africa, and I I went over there to see, and I went with World Vision, our international ministry partner, to see the work uh, that we've been supporting as a church since 2011. While I was there, we needed to get from one place to another where there wasn't a road. So we rode in this. It was a plane with 17 seats. How many of you have been in a plane this small? Yeah, like a quarter or less. How many of you, your blood pressure just went up because you're looking at a plane that small? (laughs) Yeah, even more, right? A lot of people are like, I am not into the small plane thing. Personally, I thought it was awesome. I couldn't, this was like my favorite part of the trip. I'm like, we are going to go on that plane. Our plane had 17 seats, and when we were boarding the plane, and I use boarding as a general term because you don't really board a plane like this. You kind of crawl in through a small door. There's no standing, And the the aisles are not wide enough for anyone's hips. So you're sort of sliding like this, getting in. And I'm counting heads. And they have 15 of us passengers. And then there's one man who's clearly our pilot. He's dressed in his uniform and everything else. I'm going, well, there's 17 seats. And there are 16 people here. All right. But I noticed there was one seat next to the pilot. And we did not have a co pilot that I could find. So I said, listen, I got to ask you, if I'm out of place, you just tell me, does anyone ever get to sit with you? in the co-pilot's seat. And he said, yes, you can sit in the co-pilot's seat. (laughs) And I was super pumped. I was sitting right here with the yoke between my knees, the rudder pedals under my feet. I had my own screen. The throttles were right here. It was incredible. I could not stop smiling. (laughs) I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, doesn't that look like a small van? Yeah, that was our... (laughs) That was our plane. We were all sort of crowded in there and by the way, most of those people just ran 57 miles and they were like folded up in that plane and it was painful for them. But this was my view while we were flying. Right out the window, baby. Just the prop. So we're up there, right? And I got to tell you, I'm thinking to myself, I could totally do this. <laughs> right? I've got the controls, I've got the throttles, I'm like It's not that complicated, right? You pull back, you go up, you push forward, you go down. I could totally do this. Maybe I shouldn't, but I totally could. I mean, I was convinced. But, of course, I had never been to ground school. I'd never had a lesson. I didn't know how high we were supposed to fly. I didn't know how to adjust the mixture of the fuel. I didn't know how to use the radio. I didn't even know where the airport was. (laughs) No clue. So if I would have tried this without any preparation whatsoever, all I would have done is kill everyone. (laughs) Because I don't know what to do. Because we cannot accomplish the mission before us without going through our essential preparation. And if you and I are not prepared, when we have the opportunity to be sent out by God, we will fail. Because we must be consecrated to him in order to be used by him on the mission of God. Now, consecrated is such an old-fashioned word. I think we could talk about it in a different way that's more helpful. Instead, we want to be developing our character. See, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm preparing for a new initiative, preparing my character isn't the first thing on my mind. It's usually preparing my competency, right? You know, as a church, we're moving to the Viscardi Center in about four weeks. All of our teams are learning new things right now. They're all training. We're writing training manuals. We're, bringing, we're having training days. We're having training calls. This is all we're doing is building our competency, making sure we actually know how to do the thing. And it's the same for you. When you have a new idea that you want to pursue, you know, let's, you know, maybe it's a new project for work. Well, if before you propose this new project to your boss, you're going to start, you know, can I actually do this? You're going to start figuring out how it's done. Or if your goal is to get into college, then you're going to be building your competency now. You're saying, listen, I want to get good grades in school. I also want to find out what standardized test my preferred college prefers. I'm going to specialize in that test. I'm going to get a tutor or I'm going to take a class. You're going to be building your competency, right? If you want to take up a new hobby, you're going to learn how to be good at that thing. You know, every time I decide to do a new race, I subscribe to new running magazines and all of that, right? Because I want to get better at my thing, whatever it is. But God doesn't say that here. He did not say in Joshua 3:5, go out and practice. And it would make sense to me if he had, because Israel needed to go to war. This is not something they really had been doing. They had been wandering around in the desert. If Joshua would have said, hey, it's time to practice with your sword. Or even more appropriately, he probably would have said, it's time to actually go make a sword. Because I'm not even convinced they all had one. If you remember, the first battle was Jericho where they, like, played their trumpets and had a parade, okay? It doesn't sound like they were ready to go to war, okay? But that's not what God said. He said, consecrate yourself. Build your character because if you have the character necessary, then you'll be able to go out and you'll be able to accomplish the mission that God is placing before you. And so how can we develop this kind of character? I want to talk about the motive behind developing character and then one simple but profound tactic that we can employ to try to develop our character. All right, so what are the motives behind developing Christian character, the motives that we use to inspire and motivate ourselves? So a lot of people will go to guilt as their primary motivator for growing in their Christian character. They might put guilt upon themselves. They will do something, whether it's something they said or something that they've done. They know it's wrong. Their mom told them it was wrong. Their priest told them it was wrong. They knew. They do it anyway, and then they feel guilty. And they tell themselves, I don't want to feel guilty anymore, so I'm going to stop doing the thing. And that always works, right? Always. No, of course not. You just continue to feel guilty, and then what you really do is, if you're like me, you get good at it, and then you realize how you can make other people feel guilty. How could you do that? You should be embarrassed. That you acted that way. You know, you, you represent, you know, whatever. You represent our family, or you represent this team, or you represent this company. How could you act that way? And we use guilt and shame as motivation for developing character, right? It doesn't work. Some people, instead of guilt, they go for pride, They want to develop character because there's something in them that wants to feel ahead of the next guy. I like to coach baseball, and I can tell you, I don't curse at the kids. I do my best. I don't curse at the kids. Some of the other coaches, they do curse at the kids, okay? Now, the kids deserve to be cursed at, by the way, (laughs) okay? But I don't curse at the kids. Some of the other coaches do, and I think to myself, I'm a way better coach than this guy. He's out there cursing at his kids. Using pride as a motivation. To say, look, I am better than you. And if you are growing, in quotes, your character through pride, you're not growing anything. You're actually just exchanging one problem for another. And in fact, pride is probably worse than whatever you were working on to begin with. So guilt isn't going to work. Pride isn't going to work. So what is a single lasting motivation that could actually cause us to grow, have sustained seasons of growth in our Christian character. I would submit to you that it's this. It's what the saints and other heroes of the faith have called the religious affections, which actually means the love for Jesus that you have. Because it's only through a deep and profound love for Christ that you will actually start to grow in the character of who you are. Because as you love Jesus more and more, you don't want to disappoint the calling that he's placed in your life. You don't want to disappoint him with the way that you treat his other brothers and sisters. You don't want to live contrary to the life that he's called you to because of the love that you have for him. Think of this just as a picture. It's not a perfect picture, but it's it's a metaphor of what we're talking about. Imagine a husband and wife who are in a healthy marriage. They're doing well. They love each other. They're faithful to each other. The husband is out with a group of people. There's a woman there, she's attractive, he has a somewhat lame joke, I have experience with this, and, and she laughs a little too much. Now he notices, I promise you that he notices, that this beautiful woman laughed too much at his lame joke. Then what comes next will tell you a tremendous amount about the relationship with his own wife. Because hopefully this man will say, I have no interest in this woman whatsoever, because of the love that I have for my wife. And I would never do anything that would hurt her or embarrass her or would violate her because of the love that I have for her. And that would be his barometer for faithfulness. Not, I don't want to feel guilty for doing that. And not, I've never cheated before, I'll never cheat now. Not guilt, not pride. The actual love that he has for his wife. Now imagine that picture, but with perfect and whole and complete love that Jesus has shown to us and we're trying to learn how to show that love to Christ. I mean, Jesus said it himself in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And how do we grow in our love for Jesus? It's simple. To know Jesus is to love Jesus and if you wanna grow in your love for Jesus, you have to be spending more time with him. How do you spend time with Jesus? You spend time in your own personal prayer, your own personal study of the Bible, you know, coming together for group worship like this, having times of worship on your own. Growing in the knowing of Jesus is how we grow in our love for Jesus. And then we have true and lasting motivation to be growing in the character that he has created us to have. And that is the preparation that we need. Now, tactically speaking, what are some actual strategies? I'm a very practical person, so I would like to know what can I actually do to start growing in my character now? And there's a number of tactics you could take. Some people, they maintain, you know, lists of things they're not going to do. Great, you know, some people have standards they've agreed to with who they will be alone with. That's great. Some people have, uh, you know, certain ratings of movies they won't see. Other people have certain channels that they won't subscribe to. These are all nice little tactics which can show fruit but I believe there's one that goes much deeper because it can be a gateway into a real kind of tactical advance on learning how we can develop Christian character, and it would be this. Committing yourself to radical honesty if you are willing to be 100% honest all the time. I did some reading this week on honesty and on lying, which is a little awkward because you're reading a study about lying and you don't know whether you can believe them or not because that would be a really funny joke to write a study about lying that isn't true. But according to what I read, most people lie between one and two times every day. Every single day. Who do you think lies more, men or women? Come on, be brave. Men or women? It is men. (laughs) Men are around 1.9 lies a day. Women are around 1.4 lies a day for everyone. So what does that mean? If you stood up right now and said, I have not lied today, my guess is that will be lie number two for you. (laughs) Okay? Because that seems to be what the research indicates. So think about that for a minute. I'm 40, and according to those numbers, I'm good for about 400 lies a year. Right? So I'm 16,000 lies in right now. And who do you lie to most often in this world? Absolutely. So how many times have you deceived yourself? How many times have you lied to yourself? And we're so good at lying to ourselves, and a lot of it has to do with justification because I know my intentions, and I'm always willing to judge myself on my intentions. So when I say something to you, and it's actually harsh and cruel, I usually give myself a pass because I didn't mean it that way. I actually thought it was funny. You thought it was harsh and cruel. So I'm kind of sorry. But when you say something harsh to me, all I have is your behavior. I don't have your motivation. So I would then assume the most harsh, difficult, possible motivation for why you would ever treat me this way. Because I'm lying to myself to say, what I did really isn't a big deal. What you did, oh man, that was a big one. We lie to ourselves and we, we justify our behavior. And here's what will happen, if we're willing to bring into congruence the outer life and the inner life, to let the outer voice be the same as the inner voice, to let your actions be the same as your thoughts, when you have to bring those into alignment, then you're going to really start to get an indicator of where you're really at. You can't improve something until you really know its current state, right? You go to the doctor. What does the doctor start every visit with? They gather data, right? They put you on the scale. It doesn't matter that you fasted lunch. The scale still hurts, (laughs) right? What else do they do? They they check your blood pressure. They check your resting heart rate, uh, cholesterol, you know, whatever. And then whatever your deal is after that. They're going to check all kinds of things, right? Then they give you the good news. Hey, Chris, good to see you. Good news. You've gained 10 pounds this year. like, awesome. Thank you. You know, and then, but now... You know where you're at. You have some sort of a benchmark. And until we're honest with ourselves, we have no idea where we're at. And I think you'll be amazed how often you're compromising your character. Small, little lies to make your day easier. And when you're willing to bring those things into congruence, into agreement, then you will start to see real change because you'll be confronted daily with how far you're falling short of the love that you want to have for Christ. And by the way, this is off topic, but just something for you to think about. So I have my 16,000 lies that are out there, right? That's 16,000 stories that I'm trying to keep straight. Do you think that gives you any anxiety? Do you think that gives you any nervousness? you think there's ever a time when you feel like a fish out of water? Because you're maintaining these two lives, and that's incredibly tense. There's a lot there that's happening and rotting at your soul, but if instead you can say, no, 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 I am me. The psalmist says it this way, says, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You need that wisdom in the secret heart if you're truly going to be growing into the character that he's created you to have. So who even is Henry Varley? who would say such a profound thing, that the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the one who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. History tells us that Henry was no big deal. He was a British guy, but he had a couple of friends who were stateside. Two friends, Dwight and Ira. I know it sounds like a New York joke, but it's not. Those were their real <laughs> names, okay? Okay. Dwight and Ira went to see their friend Henry. Dwight and Ira had a decent ministry going here in the States. They went to see Henry. Henry was praying with them and he said this to them. He sort of just just said it over them and spoke into their life and they were stunned at this statement. Dwight Moody went home and he wrote it in his journal. He couldn't believe this thing that his friend Henry had said to him. And he thought about it for years. A couple years later, he went back, and he sat with Henry again. He said, Henry, when you said this to me, it it had such an impact on my life. And Henry said to him, I don't remember saying that, (laughs) which is true. But God just used Henry in his life. And what happened then is Dwight Moody and his friend Ira Sankey, they really dedicated themselves to God's mission, dedicated themselves to consecration. And I don't know if you're familiar with his story, but he had one of the greatest impacts of the last 150 years. He started four different Bible schools and seminaries that trained thousands and thousands of leaders. He founded a publishing company, one of the earliest ones that would publish real, honest, good materials about how to grow in your faith. When D.L. Moody died, three different U.S. presidents sent a written tribute to his funeral. There was a young preacher named Billy Graham who went and he was inspired by Dwight Moody. And early in his ministry, they talk of him going to Dwight Moody's grave and aspiring to the same type of ministry that millions and millions of people have been impacted by just a few people saying, I'm willing to be consecrated for you so that you can use me in this world. That's my prayer for us, that we would grow in that consecration, that our character would be such that it can support the work that God wants to do in us and then through us, so that as we're sent out on the mission of God in this world, we can accomplish everything that he has for us. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up, because we're going to move now into a time of communion. And I just want to remind you that as as we're learning to love Jesus more and more deeply, we love him because he first loved us. I mean, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He stepped over that gap and said, "I love you with a, a perfect and a holy and an eternal and an everlasting love." And that's the love that we're trying to learn to grow in and demonstrate to this world. And that act of love from Jesus we remember at the table of communion. we remember his body and we remember his blood. And so as we sing together, you know, prepare your hearts and your minds to be reminded of the love of Christ. So why don't, why don't you stand?